Well, our text today begins with an awkward silence. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation where there's been an awkward silence or uh, an awkward pause, right? You, you wonder, what, what is this person thinking? Uh, uh, do I need to intervene, right? Now, uh, for some of you, that pause is very short. It takes a very short amount of time for you to feel like, there's an awkward pause here. I need to, I need to fill in the gap of this conversation. Uh, others of you, that can go a long time, and you're okay to sit in silence. But let me ask you, has there ever been an an awkward pause in your relationship with God? Have you ever experienced an awkward, what you felt like was an awkward silence in hearing from God? It's like your, your sense of fear is plenty loud. Your sense of doubt, anxiety, that, that, that's getting through loud and clear. But when it comes to the Lord, you've got an awkward silence. Anxiety and fear and dread, but God seems distant, confusing, unclear, awkward. Well, that's where the disciples find themselves at the beginning of Matthew 17. You can turn there to the outset of Matthew 17. I'll set the context. The disciples have been with Jesus for almost three years. Uh, We've been in this Matthew series for almost three years. And, and Jesus has brought to them the, the million-dollar question, right? The ultimate question, kind of the, the moment of truth. Who do people say that I am? They give some answers, and he says, now, who do you say that I am? And the disciples sort of elect Peter as their spokesman who delivers the goods. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the euphoria of getting that right is shattered when apparently Jesus' version of what it means to be Messiah is very different than the disciples' version of what it means to be Messiah. You might say at that point they are at cross purposes. All right. Cross purpose. Okay. So there was a sharp exchange. You remember Peter rebukes Jesus. So Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, and then gives him those verses. If anyone would come after me, he's got to deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. That person will discover this crazy irony that whoever wishes to keep his life and live selfishly ends up losing it. Whoever loses his life will end up finding it. What can a man give in exchange for a soul? Even if you gain the whole world but lost or forfeited your own soul, you get the idea. So the disciples have had the euphoria that Jesus is Messiah. It's been shattered by the revelation of what Messiah will mean. And then Matthew tells us there's silence. Agonizing silence. You don't normally get a time stamp. In Matthew, you get a place location stamp. They went from there to here. They were in Caesarea Philippi. They moved down to Capernaum. But you rarely get a time stamp. And that's what we have in Matthew 17, verse 1. You get a time stamp. And after six days. So we have six days of no recorded conversation. That doesn't mean they had no conversation, but there's none that Matthew records. I think it's safe to assume those were pretty tense days. It had to be hard for the disciples thinking, I mean, the, Peter has just been, basically, he feels like he was called Satan by Jesus. And after, after explaining that Jesus was the Messiah, it's got to be tense for the disciples. They're hearing about Jerusalem. We're going to suffer. And there's gonna, they're going to put you on a cross. How can this be? You're supposed to be the king. You're supposed to be the Messiah. It was probably pretty, uh, pretty sad days for Jesus. 
No one understands his mission yet. He needs, a, he needs a friend, somebody who can understand. And it seems like his closest friends don't get it. They think he's going to accomplish everything that Messiah is supposed to do on one trip. Just on his first trip, he's going to come, he's going to establish the kingdom and, 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 and be an earthly king, and they're ready to celebrate the crown. Yeah, but they're missing that step that has to come before. The cross has to come before the crown. So he's got he's to he's teach him. He's got to break the silence. So what does he do? Verse 1 says he takes three of his friends on a mountaintop experience. He takes his buddies on a prayer retreat. Look at verse 1. After six days, now's the time, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. When you're spiritually flat, what, what, do, what do you need? You need a prayer retreat with Jesus. <laughs> You need to get away on a high mountain. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we still do the same thing. We call it youth camp. <laughs> right? What you realize is you, you go to kids camp, you go to youth camp. What you may not realize as an adult is you don't outgrow that need to have those special times to pull away and be with your Lord. So you don't outgrow that need. None of us outgrow that need to have those times, those special times where Jesus will reveal some stuff about himself. And that's what he does. And what he does next is a famous moment. It is recorded in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Show us uh, uh, each uh, a little bit more detail. But what you have here is the Mount of Transfiguration. You ever heard of this? This is a key moment. It's hard to know exactly what to do with this moment, but, but here it is, verse 2. And there, so, so, so Peter and James and John have come up the mountain, and Jesus suddenly transforms. The word is transfigure or transform, verse 2. And Jesus was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. How long can you stare into the bright sun? Not very long, right? Imagine this is the face of Jesus shining like a, like a, like a, like, well, like our greatest star, <laughs> like it, Jesus Christ, superstar. There you have His clothes, it says, became white. As light. So, in other words, this isn't some reflected glory. This is coming from within. What's going on here? What, is, what, is the, what does transfigured mean? Well, it really means transformed. Well, this is the kind of language that in the Old Testament is used of God. Way back in Psalm 104, it says that God is clothed with splendor and majesty and wears light as a garment. So, something here that's ascribed to God is now we're seeing ascribed to Jesus, what's going on? Here's what I think is happening on the Mount of Transfiguration. According to uh, John 17, Jesus, in, in his high priestly prayer, he says that he has always eternally shared glory with God the Father. We believe that the Bible, the Bible teaches that God is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are eternally one, one God, three persons, right? And so this, this triune God, he is uh, uh, never lonely that there has been love and glory and shared adoration for all eternity past. And in that glory... It's been veiled in what we call the incarnation. The incarnation is just a fancy way of saying when the second person in the Trinity, Jesus, took on human flesh. That's where we get the word incarnation. You hear that carnate. So when, 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 when that little baby is born in Bethlehem, born in a manger, he still has all, all that glory. He has eternally uh, been with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit. But now there's a Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that says it perfectly. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. 
In other words, Jesus has had this glory from all eternity past, and it's like here he unveils it for a second. It's like some glory slips out. And the disciples get a little taste. They get a little vision of what Jesus has always had. More importantly, not only the vision he's always had, but he's saying, guys, this, this glory has been veiled. You've seen me do some miracles, and you've seen some glorious things, but my glory has been veiled, and it's going to be really veiled in the coming days. When we go to Jerusalem, when the Son of Man has to suffer and die, it's going to really be veiled. So, you need a reminder of not only the glory I've had, but you need to see me as I will be after the death, burial, and resurrection, after the ascension. This is the glory that's coming. In other words, Jesus, I think, is giving them here a glimpse of future glory. He's saying, here's what you get. You need to see this now because we're going to go to Jerusalem and it's going to get ugly. So for your benefit, you need to see this now so that you can see what's coming. It is a reminder of his eternal past glory and it is a glimpse of his future glory. I pause and give credit to a pastor named Colin Smith. If you Google Colin Smith, he's a great preacher in the Chicago area. He says, uh, 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 giving these disciples a glimpse into the future, specifically what he's going to look like after his resurrection and ascension. He's saying, here's what I'm going to look like in the future. Why do I keep saying that? Well, if you, if you look, sure enough, in Revelation chapter 1, when John sees Jesus, he falls at his feet because his face, John says, shone like the full burning sun. He couldn't look upon him. So that's why at the revelation, John gets this revelation of how Jesus is going to look long after this, and it matches up with what he looks like right now. That's why I think it's a glimpse of what he will look like in the future. Let me just pause right there. If you were offered a chance to do this, if you were offered a chance at a sneak peek of what you're going to look like physically far off in the future, would you decline the offer? (laughs) Huh? Often the years are not kind, but in this case, Jesus wants his disciples to see him as he shall be after his suffering. Okay, what's the point of all this? Why did Jesus choose to reveal himself in glory? He wants his disciples to take heart, to keep the faith. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm I'm, going to be crucified. And when that happens, you're going to be tempted to lose faith and just throw the whole thing away and doubt everything. When you go through the hard times, I need you to remember this. I need you to remember what lies beyond the cross. It's like he's saying, fellas, remember the glory in my faith right now, so bright you can't look upon it. Because as Isaiah the prophet prophesied, when I go to Jerusalem, they're going to beat me up so bad, I'm going to have so much bruising and be so disfigured, to look upon my face, you won't even be able to recognize it as human. So it's going to be so marred that in that moment, you're going to need to remember the glory that you see right now. You need to remember that though he will be humbled at the cross, he will be exalted in glory. I thought we'd pause there and make an application point. That's good to remember in 2023 that Christ will be glorified. So I'll give you three application points. Here's the first one I think we can take away from the Mount of Transfiguration. What he's showing his disciples is, hey, it's going to get rough. It's going to get really awful there in Jerusalem. You need to remember now, I'm giving you a glimpse of glory, a glimpse of future glory to get you through your current crisis. Take heart, Christ will be glorified. It's not a lost cause. You do not serve a weakened, killed Messiah, but rather a risen Savior. If you're going to take up your cross and follow Jesus, you need the transfiguration. You need a glimpse of life beyond the cross. How do we apply this 
in 2023. Don't missionaries in South Asia, North Africa, and Middle East, and the places where it looks so hopeless, don't they need this? Don't they need this understanding that Christ will be glorified? When everything seems to fall apart globally, don't we need a reminder that the Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, all to the glory of God the Father. Every knee, every tongue confess. For those of you that are, maybe you're not a a missionary in a place that's hostile to the gospel and you need this understanding that Christ will be glorified, but maybe you're going through some personal stuff right now. And maybe you're uh, really battling. Take heart. What will it look like? Can you picture it? Whatever you're going through right now, what's it going to look like when Christ is glorified in this solution? When Christ is glorified, when Christ gets the victory. If if right now, if you're in the throes of addiction, can I ask you, can you see the glory of Jesus Christ? What does it look like when he finally and forever gives you freedom over that addiction? Take heart. Christ will be glorified. That's what the Mount of Transfiguration, that's why he's trying to encourage those disciples. For those who are facing what seem like intractable problems, it doesn't seem like there's a way forward. God is a God who makes a way when there seems like there is no way. Can you imagine what it's going to look like when Christ will be glorified, when he gets the victory over that situation in your life? One of my favorite things to do is is, uh, 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 when, when I'm folks come and they're looking for some help. They're looking maybe for a little counsel. And one of the things I do is just just stop in the middle of all this crisis. And I say, what's it going to look like when you two stand? For example, there's a marriage that's fallen apart. And they see no way forward. Sometimes I'll ask them, what's it going to feel like when you two are standing before God's people giving testimony of praise of what God did? And you're going to be able to say, listen, if anybody feels hopeless, it wasn't any more hopeless than the two of us, and here's what God did. You need a glimpse of coming glory. And that's what the the Mount of Transfiguration, that's what Jesus is giving to his disciples. And all throughout Matthew, if you haven't noticed yet, uh, uh, that Jesus teaching the disciples is by extension Jesus teaching us. The joke's always on us in Matthew. Have you noticed that? It's like these disciples, you read, every time you read and you go, oh, these guys are so slow to get the point. God does so much in their life, and they act like he won't come through for them again. Can you believe these guys? Glad I never do that. Oh, oh, he's talking about me. It's the same thing here. He's teaching the disciples, hey, there is coming glory. Christ will be glorified. Boy, what a perfect hymn that we sang. This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget. And the Mount of Transfiguration was Christ's way of showing his disciples and showing us, let us never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be glorified and earth and heaven be one. You know how you're praying for that lost person? You're praying for that situation? And what do you pray? Let your kingdom come. Get the evil out of this situation. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done. That's going to happen. That's what he's saying. Till earth and heaven be one. Jesus who died shall be satisfied. The lamb who was slain will receive the reward of his suffering. Take heart. You need a glimpse of coming glory to help you through your current crisis. Before you face the cross, behold his glory. That's the first application point. Christ will be glorified. The second is to consider who shares in his glory. I'll give you the application after we look at these verses. Verse 3, and behold, 
there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. What? The ultimate Bible conference of all time. <laughs> Can you imagine? Why Elijah and Moses? Well, remember, this is not the first time in the Bible that people have been brought up a mountain to behold God. And Moses and Elijah both get what they call a theophany, a vision of God. You remember Moses asked to go up uh, and to behold God. Lord, show me your glory. And God tells him, mercifully, if I show you all of my glory, you will explode. You, you won't be able to handle it. Uh, the way he says it in Exodus 30, no one can see my face and live, right? So I'm not, I'm not going to behold all of that glory. Instead, what he did, he, he put him in the cleft of a rock, he hid it, and he passed by in such a way that he could see the back, but there was no way he could behold all of that glory. So he got to go up the mountain and, and, and just get a taste of the glory of God. Elijah was uh, ready to throw in the towel. He was depressed and discouraged, and, and, and in comes a whirlwind and all these uh, natural uh, elements, but uh, God didn't speak in all that big, loud stuff. Instead, he spoke to him. Do you remember this? In a still, small voice. There he meets God. I think uh, Moses represents the law, and Elijah, perhaps the most famous of the prophets. So here, isn't it interesting? You have Jesus flanked by the law and the prophets. Together, when Jesus talked about the Old Testament, he would summarize, he would say the Old Testament was the law and the prophets. Matthew is showing us, I think, that in the law and the prophet, we get a partial understanding of God. Just like in the case of Moses, he got the back or just the voice in the case of Elijah. He didn't get to see him. But now with Jesus, you get the full revelation. And that's really true of Scripture, isn't it? Like the law and the prophets do what? They testify. They point to the ultimate revelation of God, Jesus Christ. So here, it's, it's, in a manner of speaking, Matthew is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. The Old Testament says that every matter is established on the strength of two witnesses. What better two witnesses to testify that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets? Who's better than Moses and Elijah? And the Bible says they were talking with him. Talking with him. Wouldn't you love to know what they were talking about? Well, here's the thing. I happen to know exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> you some sort of prophet? No. I'm a non-prophet. But <laughs> I happen to know because it's in the Bible. I cheated, and Luke tells us exactly what he's talking about. If you'll allow me to just show you Luke chapter 9, where Luke records the transfiguration, he tells us the content of their conversation. And behold! Two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke. And they tell you what he's talking about. What did they talk about? They spoke of how he's going to exit. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, that is a very kind and polite way of saying the brutal truth. What is his departure? What is he about to accomplish at Jerusalem? If, if you need help, he literally just said it like three verses ago back in the end of Matthew 16. They're talking about what? They're talking about Calvary's cross. Y'all, when Moses, representing all that's in the law, and Elijah, representing all that's in the prophets, get together with Jesus, what do they want to talk about? The old rugged cross. They want to talk about the cross. 
Why? You know why. Moses and Elijah were sharing in the glory of Jesus Christ, and it was all coming together for them. And, 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 and they, they are great men, Moses and Elijah, but only fallen men. They were not perfect by any stretch. Uh, uh, Elijah was uh, uh, just about a, a quitter, had his own sins. Moses, uh, remember, was a murderer, had a lot going on in his life, and yet there they are sharing in Christ's glory. How? How is that possible? How is it possible that Moses and Elijah are able to now be welcomed into the kingdom of God? And the answer is the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. They want to talk about it. And can't you imagine Moses going, it all makes sense. I mean, here's Moses writing out the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the first five books of the Old Testament. He's writing out the Torah, and he's putting so much stuff in there about sacrifice and Passover and all this, atone, and the Day of Atonement, and how the blood of the Lamb. And at some point, he's got to be wondering, I know God forgives sin, but how can it be that the blood of this fluffy little quadruped this cute little lamb, I get it, this lamb is adorable and the kids love it and it's really, it's really a visceral thing when that lamb is sacrificed and the blood of the lamb, I get it, symbolically it's like, well the lamb didn't do anything wrong, but the lamb kind of like bears the sin of those who did do something wrong and, and God sort of propitiates the sin of, the, the wrath that was supposed to fall on these people. Fell on, I get that, but it feels like a symbol. How's God able to do it? Jesus unlocks the mystery to which the law points. And Moses can't get enough. Of course, of course. And it's just dawning on him. And, uh, Every year at Passover, we would take the hyssop, we would dip it in the blood, and by faith, we would apply the blood, it says, to the what? To the, to the lentil and the post, right? And so we would apply the blood just like this, over and over, year after year. We would dip it in the blood, and we would apply the blood in the shape of a cross. You believe this, Elijah? He's like, yes, yes. Unbelievable, they're talking about it. Elijah's talking about how far Israel had fallen and how God's plan was for Israel to be the blessing to the nations. They, they can't even walk under God's blessing themselves. How are they going to bless the nations? And then Jesus, it all makes sense. On the cross, he was the true and better Israel. And he bore the punishment for sin. He was the suffering servant. It all makes sense. And they want to talk more and more about it. Well, I can sum this up as an application then. Application first one was that Christ will be glorified. But here you have Moses and Elijah sharing in Christ's glory. And so I'd make that the second application. Take heart. It is possible to share in Christ's glory. How? Faith. Believers will share in Christ's glory. It's not just that Christ will be glorified. Luke 9 says Moses and Elijah were sharing in Christ's glory. You will share in Christ's glory. Now, I thought this would be helpful to extrapolate. Some people have some questions about heaven. They have questions about what it will be like to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so I think the Mount of Transfiguration has a teaching element here that we can learn some stuff. So I, I, don't, I don't normally do this. You know, I'm not a very outline-centric, but under, under this second application, believers will share in Christ's glory and, and note-takers rejoice. I'm actually going to give you sub-points, <laughs> A and B. So here's the second application. Take heart. Believers will share in Christ's glory. And that helps us understand a couple important things. And I want us to understand them from the Mount of Transfiguration. The first is, did you know your identity does not end at death? So there'll be subpoint A and B here under two. Your identity does not end at death. Elijah is still Elijah. 
and Moses is still Moses. Did you know that? That your, your soul is eternal. There will never be a day for all eternity that you won't cease to be you. Listen to me. The only thing that changes at death is your address. You will still be you. Ponder that. You will still be you. And that means you will still be you eternally in one of two places. If you have, Moses and Elijah aren't reincarnated. They're not, they're not floating off. They're not like an angel with wings or anything like that. This is very important. When God created you, he created you for eternity. So there'll never be a time when you cease to exist. You might say it this way. There's a principle here of continuity. Continuity between this life and eternity. Your relationship with God continues into the next life uninterrupted. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So if your relationship with God right now is one of faith and dependence and love, it's marked by faith and dependence and love. In other words, if you are a born-again believer, then right into eternity, your relationship with God continues to be one of faith, dependence, and love. If, however, you reject Christ, if your life is marked by rebellion and rejection, it will continue in that state eternally, permanently, forever, without hope. Colin Smith points to Ecclesiastes 11.3, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. <laughs> in other words, your identity does not end at death. Now, it, that should either give you great confidence and great encouragement in your faith, or it should terrify. In a, and I mean this in a really healthy way. It, there should be a healthy fear. If you are not yet right with God, he welcomes you today. Be saved today. The fact that your identity, the fact that your soul is eternal and that Jesus just said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? I would ask you, you why would you gamble with your eternity? Get right with the Lord today. What, what could you possibly gain that would make the forfeiting of your soul worth it? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing you could gain. Be saved today. Your identity does not end at death. Moses was still Moses. Elijah was still Elijah. The other thing uh, the Mount of Transfiguration points out, and this is the second of the two little subpoints here, you will be known and recognized. Notice, Moses and Elijah do not have name tags. And yet, huh? And yet, Peter, James, and John all know who they are. As they tell the story, there's no doubt. It's Moses and Elijah. I don't know where this myth started, but uh, people sometimes ask me, you know, will we know each other in heaven? Of course we will. He said, preacher, where do you get that? Well, Matthew 17, the, the transfiguration. For one thing, they knew who Moses and Elijah were. They're known and recognized. But for another thing, think about it. God did not spend all this effort on community, on drawing people together in this life, only to have us alienated and isolated for all eternity. He wouldn't do that. The gospel, over and over in the New Testament, talks about how walls of hostility have been broken. The gospel draws us together. It takes us out of alienation and out of isolation and puts us in a forever family. So the gospel draws us together. It doesn't alienate us. So your identity does not end at death, and you will be known and recognized. These are takeaways from sharing in Christ's glory. And if anybody needs further evidence to know, it is possible to share in Christ's glory. There's scriptures in the New Testament. You know, the word transfiguration is the same word in Greek that means transformed. In Romans chapter 12, it says, don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transfigured. 
And in 2 Thessalonians, I put this one up here, 2 Thessalonians 2, he called you to this through our gospel. And what's the point? That you might, there it is, share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to have considered that. After you've served Christ faithfully, God has called you to share in Christ's glory. It's as if he's showing Peter with Moses and Elijah. He's showing Peter, James, and John, and by extension the rest of the disciples, and by extension us. Yes, you will carry the cross, Peter. Yes, you will suffer and die. So hold to this vision. You will share in his glory. Perhaps the most touching part of all this is the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus that makes this all possible. Because best I can tell, Moses, of everybody up on that mountain, Moses may be having the most fun because Moses uh, is enjoying what I believe is his first ever trip to the promised land. Moses didn't get to go to the Holy Land the first time, did he? Do you remember, do you remember that? Uh, Moses was allowed to see from a distance all that his heart wanted the promise of God, the promised land, but he wasn't able to go in. Do you remember why? Because of sin. Because of sin. Isn't that something? The law kept him out, but with Jesus, welcome home. Moses was literally able to see the promised land because of Jesus. You and I will literally get to see the ultimate and eternal promised land because of Jesus. What the law keeps out, what sin kept out, with Jesus, you're welcomed in. If you're not yet a believer, be welcomed in today. Don't you want to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, back to the scene on the mountain. We've got one more application point. Let's look at these verses and wrap up. The, now, th- there's no other word for that. My, uh, my uh, children say that the word for what happens here, it's a great word. They said it's so cringy cringeworthy. You know what that means? When somebody says something, you're just, oh, you just cringe. You have secondhand embarrassment for the person. Maybe you feel that on Sundays as I preach. (laughs) You just think, oh, it's so cringy. It's so painfully awkward. This is what it is when, and, and Peter said to Jesus, right? Just Peter, you are in front of the transfigured glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are watching Moses and Elijah share in that glory and glorify Jesus in his cross. You know what you is appropriate to say in that moment? Nothing. But Peter can't say nothing. Are any, can any of you relate to Peter? It's like this big, heavy moment when silence is the perfect thing to say, but it's brain in neutral, mouth in drive, slam on the gas, and that's what Peter does. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. Oh, thank you, Peter. Thank you for announcing the goodness of this moment. If you wish, I will make three tents. James and John are like, please stop talking. No, the tents aren't for us. It's not for me. It's one for you, and then one for Moses. They're like, please stop talking. And one for Elijah, yeah. Oh, oh, Peter. Yes, yes, we were all thinking what we need are huts. I'm so glad you brought that up. Uh, So you're going to build little tents. Tents are tabernacles. You get that? 
So I'm going to build, I, I tell you what we'll do. I'll build three miniature, uh, a tabernacle was a miniature temple. I'll build three temples. So, I mean, there's so much wrong with this. It's hard to even know where to start. And every time you pick on Peter, you're like, who would do this? Who would have these crazy ideas in the face of God? You know, the joke's always on us in Matthew. It's us. But these many temples, like really, really, three, three? How about one throne, Peter? How, how dare you put Jesus in this same class? I mean, are you going to like, uh, you're going to upgrade Jesus' tent just a little bit? He's not in the same category. That's one thing wrong with it. The other thing is, think about who he's telling. I'll build little mini temples here on the Mount of Transfiguration, which may have been Mount Tabor. It may have been one of the northern mountains. It doesn't matter. It's like, I'll do that. So you got, okay, T- two out of those three people, Elijah and Moses, I imagine would much rather go back where they came from, where they've been, the glory of heaven and the angels awaiting the ultimate new heaven, new earth. Thank you, Peter. I'm sure you could build a very lovely tent. But I'm going to go ahead and take the streets of gold um, on this one, right? Moses is like, if I never see another tent my whole life, I'm actually okay with that. I spent 40 years. I'm I'm good on tents. Uh, And Jesus, really? You're going to build me a little temple? I'm the living, walking, talking, healing, dying, rising temple of the living God. Emmanuel doesn't need Peter's pup tent. But do go on with your plans, right? But what really, of course, is wrong with this is that Peter has no category for a suffering Messiah. He's saying, forget the cross, forget Jerusalem. Let's do it, Lord. Let's get the kingdom started right here, right now. I'll build you a house that you can stay here. You can start the kingdom. Everybody can flock to you. This checks all the boxes. Who is going to doubt that you are Messiah, the Son of God? You can start your earthly kingdom now. What are the chief priests and the elders going to say? There's literally Moses. There's literally Elijah. We can have kingdom now. Let's do it. Get the tents. James, John, what are you waiting for, right? What's the problem? The ultimate problem with that is this. Jesus, of course, could have started the kingdom right then, right there. He could have been an earthly king. Everybody needs to know that. He absolutely, on his first coming, he is coming again unmistakably as king. But on his first coming, he could have. He could have immediately established a kingdom. And here's what I know. If he established that kingdom, it would be a kingdom of perfect justice, perfect peace. There would be an end to all wars. Jesus would rule God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It would be a perfect kingdom. You ready? With exactly zero citizens. Because if he comes to establish that kingdom without first coming as the suffering lamb to pay for the sins so that citizens could be welcomed into that kingdom, he will have a perfect kingdom with no citizens. Instead, what he wants is citizens from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language to populate that kingdom. So that means his first coming must be as suffering lamb of God. So this first coming means cross, Jerusalem, Messiah. The second coming will be all that kingdom stuff that Peter's so excited about. So thankfully, verse 5 is great. Thankfully, God intervenes by interrupting him. Don't you love verse 5? While he, wa- he was still speaking when. God's like, I'm, I'm going to stop this right here. So I don't know at what point he was talking when they overlapped. It, when they overlapped. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to build one for you, one for me. And God's like, I got this. <laughs> Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As in, not Peter. <laughs> Ah, the cloud. Throughout the Bible, the cloud represents, often represents uh, God. 
uh, two predominant images. One is this cloud symbolizing unknowing, mysterious. I mean, that's the whole point of a cloud. You can't see into it. When the glory of God came down and filled the temple, they called this the Shekinah glory of God. He's also depicted as fire. It's frightening. The point with all this cloud and fire imagery is he's unapproachable. No one can see him. Exodus 33, you cannot see my face for no one shall see me and live. John 1, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and his closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So from all this mystery, this is the last application. To people who say, I don't understand God, I don't get why God would do this or that, that's true. You may never fully understand God, but through Christ you can know him. And that's the last application. Take heart. In Christ you can know the invisible God. (laughs) Colossians says, in, in, in Jesus, all the fullness of deity. God was, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. So there's an irony of this. Moses, who said, well, you can't see the fullness of God, gets to behold the fullness of God in the transfigured glory of Jesus. And Elijah gets to behold the glory of God. To everybody who feels like God's so far away and I, I can't know him, there's a line in the New Testament in, in John 14 where Philip says, just show us the Father. And, and Jesus says, Philip, come on, haven't I been with you long enough to know? Anyone, he says, who has seen me has seen the Father. So in Christ, you can know the invisible God. Well, there's just a couple other verses here. When, verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. When they hear the booming voice of God, they see the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, they just fall on their face. That's the same thing John did in Revelation. They can't stand before God. You know, it's funny to me when people say, you know... When I meet God, I've got a few questions. I'm going to demand a few answers when I meet God. Oh, friend, it will not go like that. When you stand before God, you will not stride up to him in pride. You will fall at his feet. But, verse 7, but, and aren't you glad? But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. There's a principle at work. Through Jesus, you can not only know God, you can stand in his presence, rise, have no fear. There is a day coming when all of us, we will meet God. Will you trust Jesus to be there for you so that you can stand and have no fear in his presence or you will re- or, or reject Jesus, who's your only hope to be able to stand in the presence of God? This is the heartbeat of the message of the Bible. This awesome God wants you to know him through Jesus Christ. And Peter, James, and John never forgot that moment. First John, he wrote about it. He said, our, we've seen him. Our, our hands have handled him. We've seen him. Second Peter, he wrote, did you know Second Peter later gave his testimony about this moment that we read about today? Second Peter actually wrote about the Mount of Transfiguration. Here's how he put it. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And no one needs to know about my bad ideas about the tents. (laughs) But we were with him. We heard him. We got a glimpse into the future that gave us courage in the current crisis. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
That's a good corrective. It's Jesus only. Matthew wants us to see, you might say, Jesus is the last man standing, the only man standing. Where did Moses and Elijah go? Who knows? Who cares? The point is made visually. Don't look to Moses. Don't look to Elijah. Why? They've done their job. The law and the prophets were meant to point. The whole Old Testament whispers his name. So you focus on Jesus alone. Well, the musicians are going to come. I hope this is encouragement to somebody who needs that boost of encouragement. Take heart, Christ will be glorified. Take heart, believers will share in Christ's glory. And take heart, in Christ you can know the invisible God. There is a strange parallel from this holy mountain to that lowly hill on Calvary. As we have the invitation, can you do that? Can you meditate? It's almost like I'm asking you to hold the Mount of Transfiguration and Calvary's Hill. I'm asking you to overlay them in your mind. Can you do that? Make one a sort of backdrop to the other, and then you'll understand fully the Mount of Transfiguration. I'll help you. Picture on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus revealed in glory. On the hill outside Jerusalem, he's revealed in shame. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus' clothes are shining white. On the cross, on that hill, he's stripped. Soldiers are gambling for his clothes. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is flanked on both sides by Moses and Elijah, two of Israel's greatest heroes representing the law and the prophets. There on Calvary's hill, he's flanked by two thieves representing the level to which the Israelite rebellion has sunk. Here, a bright cloud overshadows the scene. There, darkness falls upon the land. Here, Peter blurts out how wonderful it all is. There, he's hiding in shame, nowhere to be seen after denying that he even knows Jesus. Here, on the Mount of Glory, a voice from God himself declares, this is his wonderful son. There, it takes a pagan soldier who declares in surprise, truly this really was God's son. My point is the mountaintop explains the hilltop, and the hilltop explains the mountaintop. We really understand them when we overlay them. Oh, church, learn to see the glory in the cross and learn to see the cross in the glory. Let the coming glory, let what's coming, Christ will be glorified. Let that fuel and build and encourage your praying and encourage your witness and encourage your work. Let the coming glimpse of glory give you courage in the current crisis. Let's pray. God, grant to us an understanding of the Mount of Transfiguration. Grant that we might go to a spiritual retreat with you, Jesus. Show us your glory that it might encourage us and fuel us on our journey as we encounter current crises. God, let that glimpse of future glory carry us through. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.